I'm especially thankful today to have uh, my friend Will Truesdale here. Uh, Will is a missionary that our church supports. He works with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and his title is the Associate Regional Director for New England, which doesn't really explain, I don't think, what he does, what's at the heart of what he does. Will has a heart to see people come to know Jesus, and he also knows, because he's been in ministry a long time, that God uses us best when we are close to him, that as we abide in Christ, that we bear much fruit. And so really what his job is, is to help staff and students throughout New England to have a good, solid, vibrant relationship with Jesus so that out of that overflow, they can share with power uh, the message of eternal life with other people. And so it's a privilege for our church to be able to support him, and I sure appreciate his friendship. I've known Will for almost the whole time that I've been in, in, in Maine. Um, I think we met at an event at an event like the first few months that I was here, and we just hooked up then and have been um, friends ever since, so that's just awesome to me. Um, Will is, uh, he lives in Wiscasset with his wife, Lisa, and their daughter, Julia, and son, Miles, and I know that you'll want to join me in warmly welcoming Will to White Pine. Thanks, Greg. Well, Joe, in your uh, introduction to the communion, you pretty much preached my sermon, so I'd like to close us in prayer. (laughs) When I was a sophomore in college, I had a roommate named Alan, and uh, he was a big, boisterous kind of guy from Brooklyn, New York, you know, said everything that came into his mind. Um, But one of the things that happened uh, in our room, he was one of three roommates that I had, was we loved to just kind of wrestle and get physical with each other. The problem was Alan was always bigger than I was, so those matches usually ended up in an unfair advantage to him. So one day, I was walking in the quad, I, I went to Bates College, I was walking in the quad at Bates, and I saw across the quad Alan walking, and it was fall. And the grounds crew had, all, had piled piles of leaves all over the quad. And he was walking towards one of those piles of leaves. And I thought, this is my chance. So I ran as fast as I could and quietly as I could up behind Alan, jumped up, grabbed him, tackled him right into a pile of leaves. And as I, as I got up, he turned and looked at me with a shocked expression on his face. And I got a shocked expression on my face because it wasn't Alan. It was somebody else. (laughs) In my embarrassment, I apologized, said, I'm sorry, I thought you were my roommate. And without a hesitation, he said, I'm glad I'm not your roommate. (laughs) It's one of those moments I'll never forget. In a lot of ways, I think this is what's happening on Palm Sunday, and Joe alluded to it, where Jesus is experiencing one thing, the people are experiencing something else, and there's a break, a mistaken identity going on in the dynamics of Palm Sunday, and I'd like to explore that a little today. Let's pray together before we dive into the scripture. Our Father, thank you for sending your Son. That's why we're here today to remember Jesus and all that he's done for us. And on this momentous day when he rode into Jerusalem, I pray that you can help us to to take into our our own hearts and lives what it is you want for us uh, from your story that we're a part of now. 
And so I pray you'd move in the power of your Holy Spirit in this place, that this would be a sacred space where you could work and we could leave here transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. From Luke 19, the story goes like this. After telling this story, so Jesus just obviously told a story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. This passage begins after Jesus tells a story. And the story Jesus tells is the story where uh, he says there's a king who gives out his wealth to different folks, three different folks, and they're charged to invest that wealth. And one of them does exceedingly well, another one goes sort of well, and the last guy buries it. And the reason he buries it is because he believes that the king is somehow crooked. And in the end, that guy finds that he's cast out. And everything that he had is destroyed. So it's on the heels of this story that Jesus chooses in Luke to ride in to Jerusalem. It begins with anticipation, build up, remembering the miracles that Jesus has done. People start to shout that he's the king. But it ends with Jesus weeping, crying as he looks over the city where really all of the hope of Israel should be seated, but it's not. The reality is the king is coming to Jerusalem, but something is going to go terribly wrong, at least in the eyes of the people. 
So what is going on? Why do they fail to recognize who Jesus is and the visitation of God to Jerusalem, which is what they long for? I want to explore this a little bit kind of in the context that Luke especially draws out for us. The first thing is that the people wanted a Messiah who would defeat Rome. That's where their focus was. First of all, all the signs point to Jesus being the promised Messiah in this moment of him getting on the donkey and walking in. First of all, it's Passover. This is a time in the Jewish calendar when they would celebrate the story of when Israel had been slaves in Egypt and God miraculously, through Moses' hand and leadership, moved them out across the Red Sea and into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. It was a miracle above all miracles that anybody of that day had ever seen happen. And God did it for them on their behalf to rescue them and give them a new life. And then he instituted for them a celebration every year, a week-long bash where they remember both the loss, right? The Passover was the time when, it, when the angel of death passed over Egypt and every child under the age of one that wasn't in a house that had the blood of the lamb posted over their door would die. So they remembered that, but they also remembered that they were rescued and given freedom from 400 years of slavery. And during Passover, um, there would be songs, psalms on people's lips. Right? Much like Christmas, right? When Christmas comes around, you start humming songs, right? And everybody knows the song you're humming, especially if it's in church, if it's a hymn, or out there if it's a Christmas song. Like, people know songs based on a season that's important. Passover was very much like that for Israel. And one of the psalms that would have been right on their lips was Psalm 118. And out of Psalm 118, we get the words, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, when Jesus shows up and begins to march into town, that's the song that comes to their lips. And what that song means is that the promised Messiah that Moses had talked about years ago, after they had come out of the promised land, the prophet who would come and be that new king for them to restore them to the way that God intended Israel to be, he was here. And so when they sang that song, they were saying, this is the one we've been waiting for. That's why the Pharisees get nervous, right? They're like, "Uh, guys, you don't know the text as well as we do, right? Um, And I'd probably be the same way, right? I mean, wait, 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 don't jump to conclusions too quickly. Yes, you've seen some amazing miracles, but let's hold off. And this guy could be dangerous to the people. Zechariah 9 would also be another passage that would be right there in people's heads. I'm going to read this to you. It should be up on the screen, too. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel And the war horses from Jerusalem, I'll destroy the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. Can you see why people were thinking this could be it, right? Jesus is fulfilling a song that would have been on their heads at the time of Passover. 
And then Zechariah 14 even says this, right? The Lord will go out to fight against those nations. Those are the enemies of Israel. As he has fought in times past. Think of David and and the victories that he had, right? On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And that's right where Jesus is. So why would they think that Rome was the target for, for Jesus? Well, Luke tells a couple stories, including uh, factual stories, and then the parable that I just shared before this march in to Jerusalem. First thing is Bartimaeus. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, with him, but he was a blind man on the side of the road as Jesus was approaching Jericho. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, the son of David, that, ti- that was a title that would have been ascribed to the Messiah, right? And so here's a blind guy in the side of the road who's heard stories about Jesus. He's an outcast. Most people aren't paying attention to him, and now he cries out. The people kind of shush him up because Jesus is far more important than this guy sh- you know, shouting out these crazy things about Jesus. But he does it again. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus do? He stops. He turns, he calls him out to him, and he heals his blindness. One of those miracles that people would have thought, this is impossible, right? And Jesus did. And so Jesus basically affirmed in power, by his ability, the title that this guy called out to him. Luke is drawing our attention to that. The second thing that happens is Zacchaeus. Then as soon as he gets into Jerusalem, now Zacchaeus, the little guy, this is a famous story from Sunday school, right? The little guy who's in the tree, too short to see from down in the crowd, so he climbs a tree. He's a tax collector. He works for Rome. He's a Hebrew who's working for the oppressive government that's holding Israel under their thumb, and he's extracting, extorting even the, the taxes from the people to use for his own pockets to make him wealthy and then to send the rest to Rome to ensure that Rome can enslave the people. How would you like to have him as a neighbor, right? So he climbs the tree. Jesus recognizes him, says, I have to go to your house today. And he does. But what happens? Zacchaeus flips, turns around, repents, gives his wealth back to the people. This was a subversive move for Jesus in the eyes of the people, where now the guys working for Rome are now going to be working for Israel. It was a sign to them, right? Jesus not only has the power of the title, but he also has the ability to turn Rome upside down one person at a time. The anticipation they must have felt in that time, in that place, was real. Imagine, if you could, It's hard for us as Americans to imagine this, but imagine if you lived in this country and it was taken over by another country of a faith or worldview or way of life that was radically different than ours, and they had utter control of your every movement, your taxes, the government, the laws, what you could or couldn't do, the kinds of jobs you could have. And the feeling that you would feel if somebody was coming along and gave the promise through all these signs that he could actually turn it upside down. So that's the feeling on this mountain as Jesus is on the colt and going into Jerusalem. Everything is pointing to a Messiah 
who can take on and defeat Rome. But the problem is they're not seeing Jesus for who Jesus is seeing himself to be. The problem is their Messiah is too small. Their Messiah is too small. When Jesus cries, and I believe these were deep, deep cries. These, these, were, these were the people that God chose to bring redemption into the world. And they're about to fail in the worst possible way. They're going to miss the loving, deep, relational heart of God that wants to come right into their presence. And they're going to miss it completely. Uh, in high school, I lived in Hawaii. My dad was in the Navy, and so we moved around a lot, but um, got to spend a good amount of years in Hawaii. Now, one of the problems you have in Hawaii, one of the two problems you have in Hawaii, sorry, just, just kidding, there's more than that, but now, one of the problems you have is cockroaches, right? So this is, they don't put this on the tourist, you know, things like, come to Hawaii, two-inch flying cockroaches. Um, but they can be real pests, um, and every morning, when I, I used to be the first guy up in my house because I had to catch the city bus to get to my high school, so I'd, I'd leave early. But I'd go downstairs, and every single morning, there were like two to five cockroaches that were around the counters or on the floor. You know, it's just gross. So I'd, we had flip-flops. I wore flip-flops. So my routine every morning, right, was to go around, whack, 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 and then wipe, 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 right? So every morning, whack, 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 wipe, 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 right? That was my morning routine, uh, cockroaches. So my dream, right, my dream was that one day those cockroaches, they could just be gone. I wouldn't have to do that in the morning. They're just gross. I hated them. Well, one day I was taking our trash out, our back door, and on the side of our house was one of those corrugated plastic 4 by 8 sheets, kind of like you use for a greenhouse roof, and it was leaning like this up against the wall. And as I came out with the bag, my elbow hit the sheet of plastic, and it began to tip, and it, as it tipped, it came and knocked all the way over. And as it's going down and hitting the ground, I'm looking at it like, what's, there's something different about this, and I couldn't quite put my... Uh, mind around what was going on, but it was black and kind of moving. <laughs> you can guess what it was, right? The entire four by eight sheet of plastic, I think because it was warm, was just covered without a space with cockroaches. My flip-flop was useless, <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> You know, I thought the problem was that, you know, a few roaches in the day, if we could get rid of that, we'd, we'd be good. But actually, just outside the door was the real problem. It went right down to the core of the house. What we actually needed to do was have one of those tents come in, which they do in Hawaii. They cover your entire house and they just bomb it with the stuff that kills those things. Jesus is weeping because he knows these people just want to get rid of Rome. But there's something else, a dynamic going on there that they don't see anymore. They're just seeing the few cockroaches skittering about what, they, what they've gotten used to. What they're used to living with day in and day out is sin and death. It's always there. And they've gotten used to it. They now just don't 
deal with that. They just want to have their life where the occupying army is gone and they can get the land back like they used to have it. That's their idea of peace, of shalom. And Jesus is riding in there with a completely different agenda. What Jesus sees they don't is that the exact opposite of the intended life that they were meant to live. And this was to be the message that they were to bring to all of the nations and they've lost that message. But the kind of life that they were meant to live has has been destroyed by the enemy. And the enemy is not Rome. The enemy is the enemy of God, the devil. He's wreaked havoc on the earth. And Jesus is saying, you think Rome is the problem? Uh Uh-uh. I'm coming in to take care of a problem that's actually going to set Rome free too. And he weeps. Because he knows, he knows when he goes into Jerusalem for that week and the people are going to test him, the Pharisees are going to test him and the people are going to test him, that he's going to fail in their eyes every one of those tests. Like when they bring the, the coin to Jesus, right, and say, Who, whose is this? Like, who should we pay? Should we pay taxes to Rome, right? The right answer there would be, no, I'm here. We are going to end that. Instead, he says, give to God what is God's, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That would have infuriated them. And when he makes claims about him being equated with the God that could judge the earth, all these things send him on the path, the inevitable path, as Joe said earlier, to the cross. Jesus, though, is not a mini-Messiah like they want him to be. Jesus is the full strength Messiah. And the reason Jesus is coming is not to take on Rome, but Jesus is the Messiah who will defeat death. Jesus is the Messiah who will defeat death. He's going to strike it at the core. And you know, any good epic story that we know out there, right? The Harry Potters, Uh, The Star Wars, right? The Lord of the Rings. Any of those things have the element of this first story that's just about to happen, right? And the story, it's the twist. It's the twist. Jesus comes in looking like a king. The people reject him as king. And he's coming on a donkey. It's, It's the wrong symbol. And so they hand him over to Rome, to the power that they want to have get rid of in the first place. And then Rome takes its power and crushes Jesus. And it seems like all is over. But Rome has nothing on this Messiah. Because Jesus did not accidentally end up on the cross, right? This was the plan from the beginning. He went to the cross knowingly, willingly, obedient as part of the grandest story that has ever been told. Because it was at this place of defeat where death seemed once more to take another victim on this earth that Jesus turned the story around. Because what he did on that cross, what he did riding into Jerusalem, what he did when he was born of Mary and took on our flesh was that he took all of those things on us. 
He took on Rome. He took on the sins of Israel. He took on death. He took on all of those things. And then he said, gotcha. And he took them and put them to death. That's the message of this week, right? Is that the very things that we feel bind us up, Jesus took on himself and brought them and killed them when he was killed. The nails that were shoved into his hands and feet, they thought they were killing him. No, they were actually getting rid of the problem that they had to live with every single day of their lives. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this humble donkey, not as a local mini-Messiah coming to get rid of a, a problem like Rome, but as the Messiah of the human race, the Messiah for you and me who through the cross takes away the sin of the world and sets us free from sin and death. So how do we respond today? Three simple things. We get numb to sin and death too. There are ways, just think of your own life. Think of the ways that you live in a way that just kind of accepts the reality that sin's there and death is there. We want to kind of put those things out of our mind and make the most of our life. You know, if we can get a good income, a good residence, a good family, then hey, we're good, right? And yet all along, there's still that beat in the background that there's something wrong. The Christian response to that is to let Jesus ride into your life, right? And that and, and I, I would say that's the response for everybody. Let Jesus ride into your life, into the center of your life. And the reason this is so, it's like instead of ignoring these things, right, the call of God is that we press into the heart of the problem. We don't ignore it anymore. We go with Jesus right to the heart of the problem. And the only way we can do this is to let him be that kind of Messiah that can take care of those things that scare us the most. Think through your own life. If you're like me, I know there's places where I feel stuck. I feel afraid. You know, that song we sang just before communion, I feel, I feel worried, I'm hungry, I long for things. I feel like I'm maybe excluded because of the things that I've done. Or you might feel fulfilled, self-made, successful, good, and all set. I don't know where you're coming from today. But Jesus has the power. He's the only one. He's the only one who walked this earth that has the power to come to you and change you from the inside out. And he can do it. And I bet if we just stood here today and said, okay, folks, I want you to stand up and start sharing examples in your own life where Jesus has transformed you, we could be here for hours and hours and hours on end. If you're here this morning and you've never taken that step, if you've never said to Jesus, come in and just take over my life, be bigger than me, right? save me, forgive me for my sins, give me a new life. If you've never done that, you can do that right now. All you have to do is open the door to your life. Jesus, just like he rode into Jerusalem that was about to reject him, is able to ride into anywhere, right? Any heart that's in this room today, no matter how hard you think it is, how afraid you might be, how curious or questioning you might be, he can come in. He has the power to take your life and transform it from the inside out.
Just uh, in March, we took a bunch of students um, around to Houston and to Puerto Rico to serve in places where hurricanes had brought devastation. And the idea is we take you know, half folks that are involved and claim to have faith in Christ and half folks that aren't involved in a group on campus and say it would self-identify as not being Christian. And Anna uh, was one of these folks on one of the weeks. And she had gone to church most of her life, um, but more as a ritual, really. And so this week she was curious, like, what's this group of folks doing, serving? And every night they'd look at the scriptures and talk about it. And uh, she described what she experienced by day two of this, being with folks for a week, as a faith crisis. She saw Jesus alive in other people and said, I I'm not sure I have that. And she really wanted it. And so it was the week of Ash Wednesday. And so on that Wednesday, she found a church nearby, just went off on her own, found a church nearby, and took communion at in Ash, Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. And as she took the elements that morning and, and brought them to her lips and took in the body of Christ and, and took in the blood of Christ, something happened to her. She said, Jesus do that for me. And she came alive. She came back to the work site with everybody and everyone was looking at her like, what happened? This was a kind, gentle, serving, nice person. And yet people were saying, what happened to her? The way they described it is like she was lighting up, right? That's the, that's the best words they could describe. What happened was Jesus came in and transformed her. And I don't know about you, but as, as the longer I live with Jesus, that experience, I feel like it, it can get farther and farther away. I think if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time here, he wants that to come right into your heart today. Let him. Let him light you up in a fresh way. Let the Messiah ride in right to your heart and just set it on fire again. He has a way to do that when you can't. The second thing is watch out for making Jesus your mini Messiah, okay? I think we do this all the time. Uh, you see it um, like in politics, in our culture, in the ways we want our lives to be blessed or things like that. We, we end up, instead of bowing to the Messiah, we ask the Messiah to become our own personal servant, right? Our mini Messiah, to take care of our few cockroaches that we don't like in our life. But Jesus... Uh, we'll never follow our desires to be a mini-Messiah. He wants to come in and do the whole deal. He is the Lord. He's the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all of life, the savior of the world, the one who one day is coming back to judge the living and the dead. That is our Messiah. Don't reduce him to something less than that. And the word that we have to proclaim to the world has to be that word which we sang this morning, Jesus is Lord. And we are to submit to him, not have him submit to us. And then the last thing is to ride with Jesus. Are you willing to take his road? Most of us want the king, but are we willing to get on a donkey and ride a downward trajectory to death? See, the way of the disciple is always to decrease so that the Lord's hand then may come and make you increase. It's never for us to increase. 
The way of the disciple is always towards the cross. But it's at the cross that, that, that God's hand comes in power and lifts us up. But there are ways that we avoid that. Um, we don't want to ride with Jesus. We'd rather ride our own trail. I know I'm like that. Uh, but part of riding with Jesus means that we embrace that, which means that we can go as Jesus' disciples to the unloved, to the outcast, to the oppressed. We can be the kind of people that can take issues that are just so oppressive in our culture around the, the politics division, around race and ethnicity and culture, around um, issues of life and death. We can actually go to those places as we ride with Jesus. And we can have a word of power to share that can bring life into those situations. If you don't get anything else out of today's message, get this. Jesus is more than you can imagine, and he wants to walk with you as you ride with him. Don't settle for less than Jesus, the Messiah, who can save. To close, um, one year my wife and I went camping in, uh, out west. Uh, we went to all kinds of national parks, and one night we stayed in Bryce Canyon, and it's a beautiful place in Utah, very, uh, very remote. It's one of the more remote places away from lights, like of cities or towns and in the United States. And it's about 7,000 feet above sea level, so you're above a lot of the dust of the typical atmosphere. And I love astronomy, so this was one place I was really looking forward to going to because I, I thought the, the skies could be really beautiful at night. Well, the, the, we just stayed there one night, and as it was getting dark outside, and we're in our tent, we're right next door to another tent, and we start hearing this noise. I'm like, what is that noise? Um, and I, I couldn't put my finger on it for about five minutes. Then I realized, wait, that's like swords clashing. Right? <laughs> so our, our neighbors were watching Braveheart <laughs> in their tent. Right? So I got Mel Gibson's voice there for them. I'm like, wow, this is interesting, right? So... Um, it's become pitch black outside, and all I hear are these, you know, that kind of thing. So I go out of my tent, and I walk a little ways away to an open clearing, and I look up. The sky is the darkest I've ever seen. I mean, it's, it's, it, it hurt my eyes to look. When, when you look up here, the sky is kind of a, almost a bluish black. There, it was pitch black. And I know most of the constellations, I was looking up and going, where, where are they? The stars were so numerous that it was almost like looking at a cloud of stars, not just individual ones anymore. And I stood there and just began to worship. I was just taken up into God's presence of his majesty, his awesomeness, his splendor. And then I walked back to our tent. Rocks! <laughs> And I thought, you know, this is what these folks know. They don't realize that just outside of their tent is a sight that could change their life if they took a look at it. It, would, it could change their perspective. But they're used to watching Braveheart at night when it gets dark because there's nothing to see. If you can take anything today um, as we go, just think of embracing the Messiah as stepping out of the tent. Don't settle for the kind of life that sin and death prescribes for us. Step out of the tent and come with Jesus. Amen.